Lord, be with us. There is too much at stake in the worship of you. There is too much at stake in life in this world for us to pretend. And so um, there are voices telling us that what we're doing right now is, is a game. It's just a habit. Uh, we're pretending that you're real. We're pretending that these ancient scriptures matter. We're pretending that Jesus can make a difference in the world. But Lord, we aren't. Those voices are wrong. We aren't pretending. All of this is real and we need you. So would you help us to listen as people who, who don't want to pretend? We want to hear everything you have to say to us. We pray for this morning as we listen to you speak from this book called Titus, and we pray for the next 10 weeks as we listen to you speak from various parts of your word, uh, beginning with that little letter to Philemon. Change us. Change us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So, the reason we read the scriptures is because God has spoken. He spoke in a lot of circumstances over a lot of centuries through a lot of different prophets, apostles, teachers, leaders, but always with one goal. He wants to show himself to us so that we can know him. And he spoke uh, and showed himself to us so we could know him through this letter of the Apostle Paul to a man named Titus. Titus was one of Paul's close ministry companions. He's already part of Paul's ministry team. Back in the year 49 AD, the first time Paul writes a letter to the church at Galatia. And you see Titus mentioned in other letters like 2 Corinthians. And now, later in his life, now we're, you know, fast forward to the year 60, 62, something like that. Titus is still on the team. And Paul has sent him to an island named Crete. You'll see that mentioned in the first chapter, fifth verse. I left you in Crete. Why, Paul? Why did you send your colleague to Crete, this island? Well, to be a kind of combination pastor and evangelist and missionary, church planter. Why Crete? Well, if you look at a map, modern map of the Mediterranean Sea, uh, you would see that uh, there's an island right here. It's a pretty big island, and, and it, that's the island of Crete. And, and you can see that it's kind of, it, it's, it's right in the crossroads of east and west in the Roman Empire. Anybody sailing from northern portions of the empire towards southern portions, uh, Crete is, it's the crossroads of culture and religion. It's the crossroads where ideas are exchanged, a really strategic place to use as a hub for sending out the good news about Jesus in that Roman Empire. There's a problem, though. Even people who live on Crete know that Crete has a reputation for being morally bankrupt. And so now Titus has the challenge of spreading this good news about Jesus in a place where it's kind of rough and tumble. Part of the good news of this letter to Titus is, you know what, even on Crete, even in a place that is known for being morally bankrupt, God wants people to know him. So that impulse is behind what we'll hear from Titus chapter, starting with the very end of chapter two and going into chapter three this morning with our scripture reading. Let's listen. 
Today's scripture reading is from Titus, chapter 2, verses 15, through chapter 3, verse 8. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy towards all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others, and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things, so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. One of my friends is a man named Brian Chappell. Brian, for a long time, was the president of Covenant Seminary in St. Louis. He left there to pastor a church in Illinois, and he recently was asked by our denomination, the Presbyterian Church in America, to step away from pastoring that church so that he could lead our denomination in a role that we call this, the stated clerk. He's not the boss of every church in our denomination. He doesn't give commands that tell us what we have to do, but he is a wise leader, and one of his roles is to keep our churches communicating and partnering with one another so that we don't become isolated, kind of the danger that Jason spoke to earlier as he was leading us and praying for us. And so one of the things that Brian did recently was to uh, conduct a Zoom seminar for leaders from across our denomination to talk about the question of, of generational dynamics. How, how is it that we have a healthy kind of handoff of leadership from one generation to another? And uh, because every church, every denomination is going to experience that, right? If, if, uh, only one, if one leadership won't hand off the baton to the next, then everything's going to die out. And so Brian was addressing that question and he said, you know, it's, this is going to be hard for us to do because the map has changed so much. And here's what, here's what that phrase means. If you are 50 and over then the likelihood is that you grew up with a mental map in which Christians in the United States represent the majority religion. If you're 50 or older, your mental map shows more people in this country who are Christian than who are not. Whether that's an accurate map or not, it's probably the map you grew up with. And, and so that, that, that means that people 50 and over have a mental map that's, that's more likely to say, 
hey, Christianity's the majority and the rest of the culture is out of step with that majority perspective. So we need to call that culture back to its Christian roots. Again, whether accurate or not, you, you probably grew up with that map somewhere in your mind if you're like me, 50 or older. But if you're on the young side of 50 like I am, um, <clears throat> if you're under 50, the likelihood is that your mental map never showed that. The likelihood is that your mental map if the first number is four, three, two, one, or you're not even 10 yet, you're still in the single digits, then your mental map shows something very different. The, the likelihood is that your mental map shows that Christians are a, majori- a minority faith in a pluralistic culture. If you're 25, you have never thought of yourself as a Christian as being in the majority. You've, you've known that your faith is a minority and that you're in a setting where there are many outlooks on life, some of which involve belief in God and some of which don't. And so your goal is not to call the culture back to its roots so much as it is to win a hearing for a way of life and belief that is alien in your culture. So sometimes we have a hard time communicating with one another across those generational divides. Why? Well, because God has called us to very different moments and, and different places in time. And uh, if, if you're 50 or over, the thing you've been most afraid of is, is that people would assume you're compromising with the culture. And if you're under 50, the thing you're probably most afraid of as a Christian is that people would assume you're antagonistic toward the culture. Those are very different fears. It might account for why sometimes dinner table conversations get awkward in a hurry. The mental map has changed. We aren't looking at the same map always. It takes time to turn the page of the atlas over and say, what map are you looking at? Let me look with you. Oh, now I understand why you lean into this conversation so differently than I did when I was your age. What map are you looking at? Let me look at, look at it with you. Now, Paul is writing to someone who is not of his generation. Titus was much younger. There's a, a leadership handoff happening here. The mental map on the island of Crete is that of minority in a pluralistic culture. There are very few Christians on this island of Crete and many, many people who are going to be hostile toward this new religion. And so the book of Titus is teaching us how and why to live this Christian life as a faithful minority in a pluralistic culture. If the map has changed, then one of the places we can go to learn how to read this new map is this letter to Titus. How do we live in that kind of environment and why? Well, here's the answer to the how question. Be devoted to good works. 
Listen again to verse one of chapter three. Hey, Titus, remind your people to be submissive to rulers and authorities, obedient, to be ready for every good work. That's verse one. Verse eight says something similar. This saying, the saying I just wrote, is trustworthy. And I want you to insist on these things I've been writing about. Why? So that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. What does that mean? It means that if you believe in Jesus, you've got to be ready and I've got to be ready to invest energy and effort and hard work in doing things that God says are good. Right? Who gets to define for the follower of Jesus what is good? God does. If God has said it is good, then we need to be ready to work hard at it. Right? Now, in most cases, those things that God says are good will be recognized by our non-Christian neighbors as good as well. Now, that's not always going to be the case. I recognize that. But in many cases, even those who don't share our faith will recognize goodness when they see it. Listen to the kinds of things that Paul is talking about, right? Verse two, speak evil of no one. I think our non-Christian neighbors would recognize that as goodness, even if they don't believe in God. Avoid quarreling. Well, now I gotta tell you, the Greek word here is closer to the English word be nonviolent. It, it takes the word for violence and puts the word for no on the front of it. So avoid quarreling isn't sort of, you know, just, just don't get into fights. This is a word that says that don't be the kind of person who's always looking to escalate it and your neighbors are afraid that you're about to hit them. When push comes to shove, we don't push back. And even a non-Christian neighbor would recognize that as a good thing. Our neighbors don't want to live in a culture that's a powder keg about to explode into violence at any moment, any more than we do. Be gentle. Show perfect courtesy toward all people, the end of verse 2 says in the ESV translation. The word there for perfect courtesy is, uh, is a kind of gentleness that flows out when everybody would expect to see harshness and anger. So if everybody living around us on this island of Crete or in this 21st century Atlanta would look at us and say, I see you in circumstances where I would expect somebody to just explode in rage and instead what I see is gentleness and humility, I take notice of that. that is, that's a good thing. Be ready to do good works, right? D don't, don't pass your days, verse 3, in malice and envy, hated by people because you're such a nasty person and hating other people in return. People on Crete would have recognized those as the ideals of pagan Greek culture. Non-Christians on the island of Crete saw these things as good. They didn't always practice them, but they saw them as good and worth pursuing. 
And here God is saying to us, be ready to devote yourselves to pursuing the kinds of goodness that I have declared to be good, but that even your neighbors who don't share your faith will recognize as good. That's the posture behind that first quote that's on our worship guide this morning from Pastor Tim Keller. I won't take time to read it, but worth following up on later today or throughout the week. This notion that because we're God's people, we will pursue the common good, pursue good things that are recognized by good, as good, by people who don't share our faith. Even to the point that, back to verse 1, we respect rulers and authorities who may not share our faith. When you're writing to people on the island of Crete in the first century to be submissive to rulers and authorities, none of those rulers and authorities are Christians, or at least a very small number of them would have been by this time. Remember, this is a minority faith in a pluralistic culture. And so Paul is saying, Titus, you need, you need to tell your people to be ready, to be ready to show respect to authorities who don't share their faith because this is one of the ways you win a hearing for this new commitment to Jesus among neighbors for whom that is strange and foreign and alien. Is there ever a time when it's right to not be submissive to rulers and authorities? Yes, that's another conversation. That's another passage of Scripture. We'll talk about that another time. Here's a problem, though. The Scripture is telling us, be ready to, to devote ourselves to good works, to every kind of good work. But there are false versions of Christianity at work in our world. That's true today, and it was true in the first century. Listen to... Uh, Chapter 1, verse 16, Paul is warning Titus against people who profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. Hey, Titus, there are Christian teachers on your island saying they know how to follow Jesus, but they don't really. Beware. So there are false versions of Christianity at work in our world that cause us to misunderstand what this phrase good works means. One of those false versions is a moralistic vision of Christianity. Moralism, whether it's Christian or some other flavor, combines confidence in absolute truth with human performance. Are we confident that, that we know our duty and we will perform well in doing our duties. And so uh, when we hear the phrase good works through a moralistic framework, well, we, we hear it as, oh, those are the things I do to show you that I'm better at performing my religious duties than you are. Good works are the things I do to impress God so that he will love me more than he loves other people because I'm better at performing than they are. Good works is is a badge of how much you've earned if you're a moralist. That's not Christianity. There's another way to mishear this language about good works, and it's through the the lens of, of humanism. 
Humanism is just the opposite of moralism. It starts with skepticism about absolute truth. There is no way to know God. There's no way to know if there's a God out there. And if there is a God out there, that God couldn't reliably communicate with us. So we're basically on our own. So we're going to do our best to live out human decency, just common human decency. And we're going to maintain that commitment to common human decency, even though there is no truth foundation underneath it. Remember, we're not sure that there is absolute truth. We're not sure that we could know what it is. But still, we're going to courageously commit ourselves to this vision of shared human decency and do our best to live it out, even though we can't defend why it's true. That's humanism. That's the reigning paradigm in our culture right now. And on this view, good works means the things I do to show my common human decency, even though there's no solid truth underneath it. Some of you might be going, Jimmy, you've said this a lot over the past year or so. You keep talking about humanism and moralism and how they're different from the gospel. And I'm starting to think that you ran out of preaching material and just recycling the same stuff again and again. Why are you talking about this so much lately? It really goes back to a conversation I had with someone here in Atlanta, an atheistic neighbor We're having a conversation about what we believe. We're having this conversation in the midst of doing some volunteer work at a shelter for homeless people. Um, And something I said caused her to respond in a way that made it clear that that she believed that, that I... I was committed to being a good person even if I'm not sure whether my religious stories are true. Like in her experience, I I, I wasn't exactly a moralist and so where could she put me? Oh, well, you must be one of these pastors who doesn't really believe any of this stuff is true but you still think we ought to be good, decent people. Like she had two categories. There's the angry, arrogant moralist who thinks they're better than you, and then there's the peaceable, decent, religious person who's not sure if it's true but still wants to be a good guy. And so she put me in that category. It was a great conversation. She was patient, gracious toward me. But I walked away from that conversation saying, you know what? I need to do a better job of helping in town be really clear that the gospel, the good news about Jesus is totally different from either of those two categories. Totally different. The Apostle Paul had a very different category in mind when he wrote, hey, Titus, teach your people to be ready for every good work. Teach your people to be devoted to good works. He was not talking about badges of moralistic performance. He was not talking about badges of humanistic decency. He was talking about how we respond to the goodness God has shown us 
in the gospel. And that's the why. We devote ourselves to good works because we know the gospel, because we know, we know God's grace, not performance. Listen again to what Paul is writing. When the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us not because of works we had done, not because of our performance. He saved us. Why? According to his own mercy. Verse 7 says the same thing. We were justified, made right with God, not because of our performance, but by his grace. You see, this good news is that, is that God, our Savior, has appeared in our world. And we love goodness, and we love loving kindness. Why? Not because we want to outperform our neighbors, and not because we're just committed to some vague concept of human decency, but because God showed up in our world, and he showed goodness, and he showed loving kindness. The Greek word is Philanthropia, love for human beings, mercy toward human beings in need. It's where we get our English word philanthropy. We love philanthropy. We love showing mercy to human beings in need, not because we're secular humanists and not because we want to score more points in the religion competition, but because God showed up and he showed us his mercy and grace We love showing mercy to human beings in need because that is what God, our Savior, did. That's totally different from the prevailing religious views of our day, which fundamentally boil down to some form of moralism or some form of humanism. This is the gospel. It's totally different. We know the Spirit's power, not common human decency. Listen again to what Paul is telling his, this young leader. Young leader, I think Titus was probably 50 years and six months or so. That's my guess. He was probably about 5'6", 140, creeping up toward 150, but that's just a guess. He was a young leader. Um, Paul is writing to this young leader. We're not joking now, right? And he says... God saved us by washing us. Regeneration. He gave us a new kind of birth. He renewed us by the Holy Spirit. He saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. We have been transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit. Why was that transformation necessary? Here is why. Read verse 3, for we ourselves were once foolish. We were people who were so out of touch with reality that we made dangerous life choices. That's what foolishness is in the scriptures. We were like that. We were disobedient. We were led astray. We were slaves to various passions and pleasures. We passed our days in malice and envy. We were full of hatred for other people, and so everybody hated us in return. That's what we were like. Don't ever forget it, Titus. Don't let your people forget it. We have humility toward people who are led astray and enslaved to various passions and pleasures because we know what that's like. 
If it weren't for the life-giving power of the Holy Spirit, that would still be me. I can't look down on somebody else who's in that circumstance. I want them to experience the same grace that I have. We approach our neighbors with sympathy. That was me. That would still be me. Miroslav Volf was a um, Croatian pastor caught up in lots of conflict, warfare, mass murder, mass torture, mass rape, assault, abuse of every kind happening all around him. And he wrote with such gentleness as he looked at his neighbors and saw these things unfolding in ethnic cleansing and conflict and warfare and he, he called that the unleashing of the beast within. He didn't say, I'm a good person and I recognize that nobody else around me is good. He said, every human being carries this beast within. And if not for God's mercy and grace, the beast would always be there. If you know Jesus, you know that. We're not committed to some vision of common human decency. We say every person on this planet is full of malice and envy and hatred that will come out in some way. It may be a very respectable-looking kind of hatred that says, I really don't know how to talk to people who didn't graduate from college. That's, that's hatred. That's arrogance. It sounds polite. It sounds sensible. But each of us carries that with us. Only, only God's power can change us. That's why we're devoted to good works. Not because we're decent people. Because the Holy Spirit has changed us. We also know the Jesus who came, not wishful thinking. There was a myth on the island of Crete in the ancient world, a myth about a king named Picos. And this king did many good things for his people, uh, but he's also known as quite a scoundrel. He seduced many women. He would lie and cheat, deceive husbands so that he could sleep with their wives, deceive these women, even, even sort of masquerading as a god so that they would feel compelled to submit to his lusts. And so on the island of Crete, um, the legend was that, that this guy did so many good things for people that they eventually made him a god, and he became Zeus. He was the man who became God. He was full of lying and lechery and lust, but he also gave these great gifts to humanity. And that's the environment that the Christian church is springing up in on the island of Crete. And it's why it's such good news that Paul and 
Titus and other Christians there can say, when we talk about Jesus, we're not talking about wishful thinking. Because if, if you think that a human heart that distorted could become a God one day, that's only pretending. And if you think people are, if you think people can really overlook evil because someone has done enough good, you don't live on this planet. Trish and I are watching a, you know, kind of crime drama right now. And we already know who did it. Like every viewer of this show knows who did it. Who murdered the little boy? But one of the defenses that the guy who did it keeps saying is, but I have saved so many lives over the years. I'm part of the medical profession. I mean, cut me some slack. One murder versus all these lives I've saved. And you know what? The writers of this show, they know. Everybody watching it, I'm going to buy that. If you got that kind of evil in your heart, you cannot do enough good to make up for it. And so what good news When we get to show up in our culture and we get to say, we are not engaged in that kind of pretend. We are not, we are not interested in overlooking evil. We are not interested in playing those games. And we offer you this truth about Jesus, the God who became man. He's not the man who became a God. He is God, our savior who appeared here on our planet. And there's no evil we have to overlook in his life. There's no murder we have to hold our nose at and say, but you know, really Jesus did a lot of good, so we can kind of sweep under the rug this one crime he committed. He was the victim of crime. There is nothing we have to overlook. What good news to say. We know the God who came. We aren't pretending. We aren't making up stories. These aren't ancient myths. The kindness and goodness of God became human and appeared in our world. And that's why we want to devote ourselves to good works. Not because we want to score more points. Not because we believe in a version of decency that's worth hanging on to even though there's no true reason for hanging on to it. But because we know this gospel story about a God who has loved us in this way. Maps, they change. I was looking at a map like this the other night. I, I, I like trains and so I'm reading a book about old railroads and I had a hard time making sense of this map I was looking at I'm like yeah that's Michigan and there's Nebraska and here's Kansas and and then there's this big blob at the top of the map and I don't know of a state shaped like that and it's I looked at the map and it says Dakota Territory yeah right, right up here it just says Dakota on this map I've never seen a map that says that. All the maps I know say North Dakota and South Dakota. Well, gosh, it was was only in 1889 that those two became states. I'd never seen a map like that. We're living through change right now. Uh, Brian Chappell spoke 
to that as he talked about different generations, different mental maps. We are experiencing that change. Generations in the church have had very different experiences. We're going to have to learn how to work that out and be faithful to our calling in a moment of change. But some things don't ever change. If you believe in Jesus, you are called to devote yourself to doing what God says is good for the good of your neighbors. You are never going to be called to be a moralist, outscoring and outperforming other people so you can look down on them. That will never change. You will never be called to practice decency even though there's no good reason for it. That will never change. We will always be desperately wicked people born with this beast within, rescued by Jesus and changed by him, showing mercy to human beings in need because that is what God our Savior did when he appeared. That will never change. God, our Savior, came to us to rescue us. He has us here in this place at this time, in this moment of change. Because we're part of his plan for rescuing the world. That will never change. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we want to be this kind of person. We want to be the kind of people who are ready for every kind of good work. We want to be the kind of people who don't speak evil of our neighbors, who are nonviolent, who are gentle even when people would expect us to be harsh and wrathful. We want to be people who are full of love, not hate. And we want to do all these things because you are God our Savior and you appeared to show us goodness and loving kindness and mercy in our need. Change us and make us faithful so that you would receive honor and glory and so that this good news about you would spread to more and more lives here in Atlanta and throughout the world. We pray in your name. Amen.